Hello, and welcome to the Own It podcast. I'm Iona Bain, and I founded the Young Money blog 10 years ago, at a time when young people were really struggling after the financial crash. Today, we've just been hit by something even bigger, COVID-19. Research suggests young people will be affected more than any other group by the economic fallout from the pandemic. So, how should we react? And what should we do next? Well, I've learned a thing or two growing up and coming of age following the last crisis. And now I'm on a mission to encourage us all to own it. Our future, that is, by waking up to the potential of investing our way to a better one. So this podcast will give you practical ideas and inspiration on how to start your investing journey. And I'll be helped along the way by someone who knows a thing or two about finance and investing and may just be able to offer a different perspective. But more on him later. Now, you're probably listening to this podcast on your smartphone. And let's face it, none of us could have survived lockdown without our phones. We've come to depend on technology for so many things in our lives. But as much as we need tech, I think we've also become very aware of its dark side. And I don't think any of us relish the thought of spending the rest of our days on Zoom. There's a huge paradox with technology, isn't there? It presents us with amazing opportunities to learn, to upskill, to broaden our horizons. I mean, without technology, you wouldn't be listening to this. But it also comes with massive downsides and dangers. And I think that paradox of technology is more apparent in our finances than anywhere else. Lockdown has turned so many of us into first-time investors. And I know I've engaged a lot more with my investments over the past year, although that could be because I've been writing a book about this whole subject. But it's also partly because nowadays we can sign up to an app and suddenly have all these exciting investing opportunities in front of us. From shares in the brands we love, to foreign exchange and cryptocurrencies. And of course we have TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and Snapchat influencers egging us on all the way. But is there a danger that this fast and frenzied investing can just become another way for millennials to misspend their money? Has investing become too easy, too alluring, too much like gambling? And do we really understand what we're getting ourselves into? Well, that's what I want to get into in this podcast series. Now, we have some fabulous top draw guests lined up. But in this first podcast, I'm going to set the scene by hunting down the person who got me into this whole investing shebang in the first place. You can either thank him later or he's got a lot to answer for. Luckily, I'm in the same house with him during lockdown. Yes, he's my dad, Simon Bain. But he also happens to have had an illustrious professional life as a financial journalist. Well, I sat down with him on a snowy day in February, just before he went to get his COVID-19 vaccine. Well, thank you very much for walking all the way through from the other room to join me in the Own It Corner. Um, It's a winter wonderland outside. I'm hoping we can have a little investing wonderland here. Why not? (laughs) Um, So for anyone who isn't aware of your stellar career in journalism, (laughs) shock horror, um, could you just tell us a little bit more about who you are, um, what you worked as before you retired, and um, how you got into journalism? 
Sure. Um, well, I got into journalism when I was about 26, um, working on a weekly paper and um, covering the flower shows and all the things that you know people aren't supposed to do, but you do actually. And then I went to an evening paper where there's lots of interesting news, we had the steel strike and the coal strike and manufacture being taken on by half the country. Mm. Um, moved to Scotland, came to the Scotsman, worked as a news reporter, um, got involved in a lot of stuff on transport for a long time. Mm. Um, and then I got interested in the railways and how the railways were being run. And I suddenly realised, hang on, this is stuff is actually quite interesting. How do things work? How do companies work? Mm. What does management do? You know, what happens in the economy? And that sort of led me into becoming a business writer. Um, after the first 10 years, and I did that for the uh, the final 29 years in newspapers. And uh, that led into personal finance eventually as well. Right, so it was the railways that got you interested in business and finance journalism initially. It kind of was the railways, yes. Um, and I thought privatisation of the railways in 1992, three, whenever it was, would be an absolute disaster. Um, I mean, arguably it was. I think mm. The jury's still out probably. Indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it certainly piqued my interest. Um, and I think that takes us back to the era of privatisation, doesn't it? Which, mm. is, which is how we all kind of first became aware that there were such things as companies with shares. Well, yes. So the 80s, was that your first moment of awareness when it came to the stock markets and what they do yeah, I think with the whole wave of privatisation that I, happened then? I think it was everybody's first awareness, really. Right. I mean, the government was determined to make us all feel we could in a way, get rich quick. We would buy mm. a slice of BT or mm -hmm. British gas. Mm -hmm. And because they priced it so low on the flotation, everybody was guaranteed a winner. Um, this was supposed to introduce us to the joys of uh, privatisation and stock market and capitalism generally, yeah. um, which, you know, it sort of did. And everybody got on board. A lot of people got on board. But it was a bit of a fix. You know, the prices were set low. Everybody made a few bob. Um, and whether we all became investors after that is really open to debate. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Because at first glance, it seems like the 1980s really was the birth of retail investing because we had all these publicly owned companies going private and, as you say, being priced very low. So seemingly ordinary investors could buy in and make a few bob. But was that the reality or was it a bit more complicated than that? No, the reality was that right up into the 1990s, um, you know, buying shares was a bit like, you know, go to a lawyer or go to an undertaker, you know, mm. you're going to a, a scary professional. Um, and it was said for a long time that you had to have £20,000 of assets in really? order to be able to buy shares at all, that nobody would deal with you. And there was no point in even reading the personal finance pages of the newspapers unless you had 20k, right. which is always a bit ridiculous. So it was the internet that changed everything. So it was still quite elitist, actually. I think it was. Mm. I think it was a case of, you know, it's for those guys who can afford it, basically. Mm. Um, and people were shut out. Gen generally, people were shut out until the internet came along. Mm, that's so interesting. And then fast forward to the 90s, and we saw the demutualisation of building societies. And that was another moment that opened up investing a little bit more widely to the public? Yes, I think most people had a mortgage with one of the building societies or possibly a savings account. They suddenly realised they were going to get some free money mm. because these societies, which were mutuals owned by their members, had all decided to go public and become public companies. Mm. Um, 
and really it was you know another case of a bit of free money mm. um, but I suppose it got people thinking about well hang on a sec what's the difference between the Halifax Building Society and Halifax PLC mm. um, should I should I keep the shares I've got in Halifax and see what happens yeah. and a lot of people did keep them um, right up until the financial crash and then wish they'd sold them because they were part of Bank <laughs> of Scotland at that time. Mm. But um, no, I think that was a, a little bit of the uh, continuing evolution of people's awareness mm. of what was happening in, in, in market. But you at that point weren't necessarily investing. It was, was it later on when you personally started getting yeah. into investing? Yeah, the, the, I, like so many people, I started investing when I found out there was a direct online broker it was in glasgow actually direct share deal right um, which is not around anymore not around anymore mm. became part of the big the big uh, operators but um you know it was really very easy at that point even though we weren't used to e-commerce and e-shopping it was easy to set up an account um and to get the sort of basic information that you needed on the old sort of steam um server you know yeah. that we had in those days um, and the dial-up uh, modem that yeah, would take about five uh, minutes. Absolutely, you know, and hurry up, I must invest now, otherwise I'm going to miss a great opportunity, which of course I didn't. Mm. Um, yes, I bought BT, and I thought it was a great investment. It was going to shoot up. <laughs> uh, and I also actually bought a Scottish um, technology company, which ended up going bust, but that I'd probably better not say any more about that. Yeah. Ruined my uh, reputation, but, but a lot of people did that. Mm. That was exactly the time, of course, when the dot-com boom was catching people out, about 2001. Well, yes, it's funny you should say that because um, obviously lots of people feel that there are parallels between that era and now because at the moment we're seeing lots of investors, retail, ordinary investors, piling into these shares in the hope that we are in a new kind of tech renaissance, in a new tech golden era. Um, but are you seeing those parallels between then and now? I think in terms of the structure of what's going on, there's a lot of differences because the big players now have got these huge moats around them, haven't they? Mm. Um, they are serious companies that you could argue um, are, are invincible. Mm. Um, I mean, that may not be the case, of course, uh, in, for different reasons in different sectors. Yes. But in those days, there were a lot of fly-by-night companies that you know were going to go bust anyway. Um, they were un completely unproven. And people piled into them because because share buying was new, basically. And mm. it was TMT, technology, media and telecoms. And if you weren't TMT, you were nothing. Um, but I think the, the lesson that you do take from it is just because that happened, it doesn't mean people always learn from their mistakes. You always inclined to think that this is going to be a different, you know, scenario. Yes. And that you have backed a winner. Yes, it's one of the big mottos, isn't it? Mm. Whereby when people want to believe in something, they say... This time it's different. Exactly. And you can always find reasons to support that theory. Exactly. But I suppose being a good investor is about considering the alternatives and considering the bull, the bull case and the bear case. Absolutely. Mm. So did you feel that sense of FOMO around that time that a lot of investors today must be feeling when they see the likes of Tesla shooting the lights out? Yeah, I think there was a great inducement to, to buy into the, the TMT thing exactly for that reason and that's a really strong parallel and I think it's also true that it put a lot of people off mm. um, you know when they did ship losses and they did see um, I mean it all coincided with 9-11 uh, which was September 2001 and then mm. we had the Iraq war in March 2003 mm. um, and that was a far bigger crash than we saw in 2020 
you know, the FTSE was down at 3,500, <laughs> you know, in March, oh, wow. two, yeah, um, in March 2003, I, th- I think I'm, I think that's right. Mm. Um, and that scared the life out of people, you know, and it was yeah. a case of, well, uh, I think a lot of people didn't come back into investing for quite a while after that. Mm, mm, interesting. So we think that last year was the end of times, no. but actually, even within recent history, mm. we saw a much bigger crash. Yes. And last year was was a was a much faster bounce back even than two thousand and nine, mm. and and certainly two thousand and three. Mm. Um, but you know, it's like I said, learning from your mistakes. People do actually have to remember what really happened. Yeah. Um, and and attends to your own psychology and the way you react in those situations is probably the most important thing. Mm. And did you have any personal experience with TMT investing? Um, say through your own company because you worked for a media yes, company of course that's right yes at the time that i joined uh, the herald um soon after it became owned by scottish television and they created something called scottish media group and because they had media in the title everyone was went suddenly <laughs> highly investable mm. and the shares went like that yeah and we all had the opportunity to uh, have join a savings scheme which would give us shares at the end of three years or five years so mm. Thinking I'm a sensible long-term investor, I'll wait five years. Mm-hmm. Um, after three years, the shares were up here, and we could have traded our savings for uh, shares which were worth a lot more, which is great. And then another two years to go, and the shares will be up there. And of course, after five years, the shares were down here. Right. The whole bubble had burst, and it was a case of shares are worth less than what your savings are worth. Just take the savings out. But I have to say. Share save is what they were called then. Mm. A thoroughly good thing because mm. it enables you to save regularly. You're putting it away out of your, you know, top line, and you end up. You don't end up with much interest anymore. But in those days, you were getting five percent. You know, four or five percent. Oh my goodness. So I mean, I, I you know, I, that was the best savings exercise I ever did, and it stood me in very good stead. Mm. We would just kill for a yeah, savings account exactly. with five percent these days, wouldn't we? Crazy. So let's talk about information. You and I have both been in the business of providing information for investors. But I guess because you worked in newspapers, that was the main, if only, source of information that ordinary investors could get for many years. We felt like gatekeepers, really. That's right. Mm. That's exactly the word. Yeah, we did. And I think at that time, there was a lot more um, information coming out from the brokers, the professionals who reported on companies, who met with companies, mm. who knew these companies inside out, actually, mm. um, which was highly useful. And, you know, one could use that to, to write about sectors and, and, and more detailed sort of aspects of the investing uh, landscape. However, um, the regulator decided, you know, in the, in the 2000s, really, that these things were not actually independent reports at all. They were marketing. They were written by the brokers who worked for these companies. Right. Um, so that all sort of tightened up and was far less available, um, especially to individual investors. Of course, by that time, there was much more out there on the Internet. But on the other hand, you know, these were expert analysts mm. and they could contribute a lot to one's understanding of, of what's going on in a company or in, a, in an investment fund. Mm. So I think there's, there's less of that. Um, and a lot more unverifiable, you know, wild information out there. Yes, of course. Because journalists are actually subject to very strict rules when it comes to writing about investing, aren't they? That's right. I mean, we weren't, uh, we aren't, weren't allowed to invest in anything that we wrote about mm. or write about anything we were invested in. So mm. you know, you had to um, be very careful about that because yeah. obviously, otherwise, you can be talking your own portfolio. And I think if you read the respected commentators in the press even these days, they will have to declare all their 
portfolio you can go online and look at it you know yes. so you know that they have an interest if they are talking about certain stocks mm. so there's a transparency there yeah. and it's worrying in a way that some of that transparency has been taken away online even if the upside of that is that it has made investing more egalitarian and more democratic and it isn't just the preserve of these journalists mm. who have the privilege of mm. getting these brokers reports mm. or mm. getting that you know really close contact with fund managers yeah. so yeah. that it's a double-edged sword isn't it yeah obviously you know we've seen only this week elon musk in trouble because he's mm. uh, telling everybody to go and buy tesla and guess what he bought one and a half billion of it you know possibly Bitcoin. a couple of weeks earlier yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't need to buy tesla yeah, no. um, yeah you know that's yeah. exactly the issue yeah. that people are picking up on um, yeah but um, I think, you know, when it comes to looking at those, those sources, those, those weird and wonderful sources out there, I mean, we have to say that it's an improvement in many ways. Mm. You know, d- democratisation has to be a good thing. Mm. Um, there's a heck of a lot of information out there. And I think the old seasoned analysts and professionals are, get a bit uppity, you know, mm. and a bit <laughs> resentful mm. because there is so much competition mm. in terms of providing that information. Mm. Um, and that has to be a good thing. Yeah. And therefore we don't have to worry that the information that we're getting through the newspapers and through those more traditional sources are perhaps compromised a little bit by Mm. the cosy relationship that Mm. they can have with the fund industry. And I mean, this is something that I talk about in Own It. People probably aren't aware that actually journalists get treated pretty well by the investment industry or certain parts of the investment industry. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, you know... The calendar would not be what it is for any financial writer if it wasn't, you know, interspersed with one dinner or, or general, you know, invitation after mm, another. Mm. Um, Tickets to sporting events, the opera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although you were always very careful about that, and you and you were very, um, you were very restrained, and I think you recognised that yeah. that could cause a bit of a conflict of interest. Oh, it, I'm, I'm sure it did actually. I mean, although we, you know, we actually. I think, in general, financial writers are very good at recognising these things and mm. recognising those pressures. Um, it's also inevitable that when you are well treated by a certain firm, you are more kindly disposed towards them, and that's what it's all about. Mm. So uh, it, it, it's quite a tricky line mm. to walk, actually. Although, in the past year, I've noticed that these firms are really, really struggling because obviously they can't take journalists out to events. So they just send you emails and say, we're having this webinar and we'd like to send you some alcohol that you can have alongside it. Uh, Can you tell us your address? It's not quite the same, is it? No, they're struggling. (laughs) They're struggling and so are the writers, but never mind. Yeah. So being in Scotland, Mm. it's a real investing hub, actually. Mm. Um, it's, It's got a long storied history. Um, with investing and is a, is a real financial uh, centre. And right now, one of the most popular, well-respected, you know, fund houses, possibly in the world, <laughs> is Bailey Gifford. Yes. And you go back with Bailey Gifford, having worked at a Scottish newspaper yes, writing indeed. about finance. Well, I remember 20 years ago, Bailey Gifford was sort of one of the poor relations. It was managing eight, eight billion. Um, you know, Scottish mortgage is now worth many times that, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and it was winning the sort of fund manager race over some other companies that uh, practically disappeared off the map. Mm. Um, so they've been a very interesting company to follow because they're a partnership, which is very unusual. Just explain how that works. Um, well, they're like a, a firm of solicitors mm. um, or other professionals who operate um, on a mutual basis. The, the partners own the firm. 
um, mm. and nobody else owns it. Um, and they have maintained that structure, which was uh, very unusual. And indeed, 20 years, 30 years ago, uh, one or two of the fund houses in Edinburgh became public companies, which meant that the that particular generation of directors walked away with the, the spoils, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it wasn't necessarily good for, for, for business, good for their business, but not necessarily good for investing. No. Because it wasn't stable and they mm. all got taken over and so on. And Bailey Gifford just stuck to its, uh, its traditional structure and still does. Um, but in particular, I remember, you know, being invited to go and have lunch with James Anderson, who manages Scottish Mortgage, which mm. is now one of the, a big constituent in the FTSE 100, never mind the, the fund world. Yeah. Um, and all he could talk about over this lunch was Elon Musk and Tesla. Had you heard of Elon Musk? No, well, yes, we had heard of him. Right. Tesla was very much the kind of in the Wild West. Okay. Um, but he was evangelical about Musk. He thought he was a prophet. Uh, okay. And this very level-headed Edinburgh fund manager was more or less saying, you know, this guy has really got, got it. He's, mm. he's understood it. Because we've seen now, obviously, the cult of Elon Musk online yes. and yes. lots of ordinary investors believing him to be the messiah mm, but yes. it's interesting in a way that James Anderson who is this very respected fund manager yes. was, was one of the first really to preach the gospel of he Musk. was but at the same time I'm afraid I, I sort of thought you've you've fallen under this man's spell you're in his <laughs> cult already because mm. of course the whole point about Bailey Giver's approach is they've tried to get very close to these guys mm. uh, these guys in California and in, in America in order to get uh, you know the inside track on these big stories of the future and they've done that very successfully um, that was part of it, you know. He he had had, he had been at Elon Musk's court, you know, for some time. Mm. So on the one hand, you might think, well, maybe that's a bit dangerous because he might buy into the hype a little bit too much. But mm. on the other hand, it does rather support the idea that if you want to buy into certain companies and certain sectors, then going to these active fund managers who are getting this level of access and contact with the guys at the top is a really good way of, of ensuring that, that you you know that, that you know yeah. what you're doing and that you're you're investing in the right companies at the right time in the right place. I think it's a really good point. And going back to what we were discussing earlier about information, um, you know, some of this kind of edge that you have to get from your, your information from the analysts has sort of become redundant because mm. people are buying passive funds. They don't need active managers, they just buy the market yeah. and that's fine. Mm. And what a massive trend that is. But you know, in defense of, of active managers, as you just said, the key to it is actually knowing about the company and not being conned yeah. and having that level of access and that level of understanding. And and I think you'll find that the managers, you know, a very small proportion, let's be honest, of active managers who consistently persuade, you know, people that they will outperform and they will do well. Yes. Um, do so because this is the technique they employ. Mm. You know, they try really hard to get close to the companies and really understand them over a long period of time. Mm, mm. So they really do earn their keep. Well, you know, if they're lucky, they do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But it's only a minority. It is. So I take it that after you heard uh, James Anderson raving about Tesla, that you rushed straight back home and that you bought shares. I in went Tesla. straight back to the office and said, "Buy Tesla, everyone." <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, we're not allowed to. No. So no, I didn't, unfortunately, uh, no. or buy a Scottish mortgage for that matter, which would, which probably would have been almost permissible. Uh, but, but but were you sold on it or not? Um, no, I wasn't, because I think it's easy with you know to be Captain Hindsight. Um, mm -hmm. We all knew Tesla was going to go absolutely ballistic. Yeah. But as, as Bailey Gifford themselves pointed out in a, in a webinar that we were lucky enough to listen to a week or two ago. That's right. Um, since they've owned the, the share, Tesla has gone back by a factor of 10% on 10 occasions. <laughs> 
And for a lot of people, uh, you know, when something falls by 10%, it's a case of, I'm out of here. You know? Yeah, yeah. So there will have been probably quite a lot of investors who thought, no, this is not for me, and sold out well before it went on that spectacular upward Quite trajectory. Quite but it's possibly. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Because we all now believe that, yeah. you know, the rise of Tesla has been unstoppable yeah. and it hasn't had really any bumps in the road, but that's not actually the case. That's true. Very interesting. So as a business journalist, you covered all of the biggest companies in Scotland. And one of your jobs was to go and cover those companies' annual general meetings. Now, for anybody who doesn't know what annual general meetings are, just explain the weird world of yeah. AGMs. Well, once you buy a share, you are a shareholder who is entitled to go and attend the company's annual meeting. Mm. And for a small company, it might feel like something in a village hall. And for a large company, it would be a very theatrical and staged event in a conference centre in Edinburgh anyway. Um, and it got more and more theatrical as years went by, with the directors sort of filing on to music and videos showing all the wonderful things about the company. Like the entrance to, to yes. a wrestling match, you yeah. know, they come uh, out yeah. of the, the dry yeah. smoke and there they are. Exactly. <laughs> uh, there was smoke on one of them. <laughs> but anyway, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors went on, that's for sure. The chairman yeah. would get up and deliver his statement, uh, which was how everything was the best in the best possible world mm. of all worlds and his chairmanship had been a fantastic success so you knew what you were going to get mm. but the, the point is that after a point oh, it seems to take an awful long time shareholders could ask questions right. and you very often had people causing a fuss uh, and being very awkward and sometimes you know quite brave actually and quite personal attacking yes. the chairman attacking the directors usually about their pay mm. uh, these days it might be more likely to be about the green agenda and what the company was doing on that in that area well yes because even from my comparatively limited experience covering AGMs I've noticed that the awkward questions tend to be around issues like palm oil and you know fossil fuels and things like that so there has been that real shift but it's a real opportunity because because the the AGMs are usually so bland, uh, you know, yeah. writers will normally pick up on a controversy and it is a chance to air that uh, in in the media. Mm. And the the sort of, you know, the awkward squad who are very often, you know, very kind of articulate campaign groups um, know how to, to, you know, to make the most of that. And that, that was great for from our point of view. And there again, that, that brings us back to that point that we discussed before relating to tracker funds and the danger in a way that we're losing that accountability that should be part and parcel of shareholder culture. Because shareholder culture can be a beautiful thing, folks. You yes, know, it's yes. the thing that really, you know, allows people to drive positive changes within the companies that they invest and if you lose that connection yeah. through passive investing um, then then that's worrying isn't it yes that is a much more significant dimension let's mm. be honest to the individual shareholders even a well-organized group of them are unlikely to achieve very much mm. uh, you, you know it, it's, it's a sort of token protest and it does shed some light on, on certain aspects of the company people might not have realized however the real power is held by the big institutional shareholders who hold the shares in our pension funds and elsewhere yeah. they are the people who can make a difference um, and again unfortunately there's really uh, you know a minority of institutions or traditionally in the past who are prepared to certainly prepare to go public and complain about things in a company. They will usually do it privately, behind the scenes, but they are the people who can make a difference in these areas. That's interesting. But again, I am seeing that change whereby, you know, major uh, institutional investors are coming out and saying these are the practices that we won't tolerate. Yes. Um, and whether or not that will actually trigger real change or not, or lead to things like greenwashing on an epic scale, mm. I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, no, it's definitely more of it than there used to be, and, and in a more focused way. And finally, 
now you're retired, you're working with me yes. in my agency. It's a privilege. <laughs> I'm a great boss, aren't I? Yeah, I haven't got a questionnaire about you as yet. But, uh, <laughs> just tell the folks listening yeah, that I'm a great boss. Great. <laughs> um, now you're just taking an interest in this area on a personal level. Yeah. Um, but you'll have learned an awful lot from writing about companies and investing for so many years. Mm. So what main lessons really have you taken away from that career? And what are the areas that you perhaps still struggle with yeah, and think I, that you'll always struggle with yes, as an investor? That's right. I, I wish I had learned more in terms of my personal investing, but then everybody feels that. Mm. Um, because the sort of the gap between the you know the cold hard information that you, you sort of should act on and what you actually do can be quite large mm. because of our, our psychology I guess yeah um, but something struck me uh, listening to the we're talking about Bailey Gifford the webinar they had the other week there and the fund managers were asked about uh, their sort of investing secrets and and what they said they were, you know straight away they said right well this is what we do we have four scenarios for every possible investment that we make and every investment that we hold and each scenario is posits a different, um, a, di a different assumption right. about what is going to happen in the economy, what is going to happen to inflation or interest rates, maybe what's going to happen in a certain region, it might be, mm. and so on. So that it's not this is definitely the valuation we have. This is how much a, a stock is worth, a company is worth. Mm. It's it's worth this, 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 or this, depending on these different scenarios. And I think in a way, as individual investors, we tend to get carried away with an idea. Yes. And something we're going to buy into um, because we've read a lot that all tends to agree people agreeing with each other therefore it must be true echo uh, chambers echo chambers um, and in fact there are different scenarios that can play out we've got a classic one at the moment are we going to get inflation coming in to play yeah if so is it going to come soon what effect could that have in on different areas it'll be good for some types of investment less good for others and we don't actually know which scenario is going to play out. Mm. So I think in terms of looking at individual shares or funds that we're interested in and looking at a portfolio that we're trying to create of different diversified investments, we need to keep these different scenarios in mind and perhaps you know balance them out against each other sometimes. Mm. I think that's something I've learned in a way quite recently despite all those years looking at things. Yes, absolutely, because what I'm seeing online in particular is this certainty around scenarios mm. and investments and um that makes the rest of us who who feel like it's so much more complicated than black and white mm. feel very insecure yes and yet it is only right to keep an open mind and to think that actually i may not be correct about this my instinct might not be right and therefore i need to make sure that i'm protected in case I'm not right. Exactly. I, I think that's down to, everyone talks about doing your homework, but it is about being aware of what is going on in, in the wider world, in, yeah. in the economy. In, if you're going to invest in a certain area, you know, and take that, that sort of punt, you, you've got to know something about it. Yeah. And I, I think to, to, to protect yourself, uh, you know, a little knowledge can be a very dangerous thing. Totally. And some of these forums reflect a very little knowledge indeed, I would suggest, you know. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, I think that's a great note to end on because I think we're both in the business of trying to provide people with a lot more knowledge about this stuff. Yeah. Um, so thank you very much for joining me and I hope that you'll be back on in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks so much to Simon for joining me for this first episode of the Own It podcast. And thank you for listening. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do leave a nice review and a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you're using. And if you've got any constructive feedback, then do get in touch. My email address is readers at youngmoneyblog.co.uk. That's readers at youngmoneyblog.co.uk. Now, I'm releasing this podcast to mark the publication of my new book, Own It, where I talk about all the investing issues affecting young people today in tons of detail. It's a really fun and accessible book if you're just starting your investing journey. And it also covers issues like your pension, how to make sure it's responsibly invested, whether to buy property, and movements like FIRE, that's Financial Independence Retire Early. So it's all in there. Make sure you get your copy. It's out on March the 16th, but you can pre-order yours now. So thank you very much for listening, and I hope you join me for the next episode of the Own It podcast. Mm-hmm.